Don't stand yet, but turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. We'll be there in just a minute. Judges chapter 3. Before the service started this evening, I was sitting at my desk um, reading over the message I had written, as one does. And Brother John came up behind me and he said, um, Brother Ben, he said, I think you get the award for the most prepared message I've ever seen in my life. And for those of you that don't speak Brother John, I can translate. Basically what he was saying was, it's pathetic how long it's taken you to put that together. <laughs> so I, um, sorry if it doesn't measure up to Brother John's expectations tonight, but I'm glad I at least won an award for something after this is all said and done tonight. That's a relief. Um, but I hope, um, even if it's a little bit of a struggle, it'll be a blessing to you. This passage um, that we're going to read tonight, let me ask this first. Um, this is not a trick question, but raise your hands. How many of you have heard of the Judge Samson? Of course, I think that would be everyone in the room. Okay, well, if I was to ask this, um, how many of you before tonight, if I had asked you to list um, the, any number of judges, would have been able to list the name Othniel? Raise your hand. Some? Yeah, but not very many. That's what I would have expected. He's a pretty obscure man. Um, and it's, it's the passage we're going to be looking at tonight, the Judge Othniel. He's an obscure man. This text is not very long. Um, the Bible doesn't say a lot about him. As I was reading it, I was, going to, I was thinking to myself, what in the world you know, should this mean? What in the world are we going to do with this? But he's actually a pretty extraordinary man. Um, it's interesting, we all hear about Samson because he was a sensational figure, right? But he, he was a pretty rough dude. Othniel, from what we can tell, um, was a good man and compared to Samson's feats, um, did much more incredible things, but people don't know who he was. I think there's a reason for that and we'll kind of get into it tonight. Um, but I, th I think there's a truth here that can really be a help to us um, and we're going to look at it tonight. So if you found your place, go ahead and stand with me. Judges chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse number 7. Judges 3, 7. It says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Okay, we are going to call him King Cush tonight, okay? Because <laughs> I'm not going to try to say that again. So verse number nine says, And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And went out to war, and the Lord delivered King Cush of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed against the king. And the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the day, and as always, I thank you for the time um, that we get to be together, and um, just the help and encouragement it is. I ask that you'd bless the rest of the evening, Lord. Um, please help me to be clear, speak to our hearts. Just use this passage to speak to us, Lord, and bless the fellowship to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So, 
Up to this point, um, if you've been here occasionally as I've had opportunity to preach, we've covered the first two chapters, the first part of chapter three of the book of Judges. And only just now, in verse number seven of chapter three, are we starting to get into the meat of the stories of the judges. Everything prior to this point has been a prelude. The biblical author has given us two broad overviews of the time of the judges, of the span of 400 years that was the time of the judges. So in chapter 1, in the first few verses of chapter 2, um, he gave us an overview of the, the very historical aspect of Israel's history during this time. So he tells us of battles fought and kings defeated and eventually kings not defeated. And he tells of how the people of Israel um, became ensnared, like trapped, like a maimed animal in, in a rough trap. He, he tells of how the children of Israel became ensnared by these gods that they should have destroyed, okay, but they were disobedient. And he shows us broadly some of the consequences of disobedience. In chapter 2, and then the first few verses of chapter 3, he again gives us an overview, but it's not so much of the socioeconomic aspect of Israel's history. He gives us an overview of Israel, God's people. And what happened during this time? They were supposed to be a people that worshipped God, served God, and trusted God only. Okay? But they gave themselves to other gods, trusted other gods for things that only Yahweh could provide. And again, he tells us of the consequences. This was a cycle. It happened over and over again. Between chapter 3, where we are tonight, and chapter 16, this cycle happened six times. Okay, one of them is Othniel. This cycle of the children of Israel, they're okay with, they, they, them and God are okay. They get it all right. And then, then they serve the, the pagan gods, and they end up in bondage. They end up suffering. God hears their cries. He sends a deliverer, and the cycle just repeats itself. And Verse 7 is the first of these cycles. And so the stories begin. The stories of the judges do not necessarily fall in chronological order. The biblical author is presenting them in an order to make his point. Okay? And the first of these is Othniel. Othniel is an example by which all of the other stories to come can be compared. Okay, he, this, this story follows a pattern, like I just explained, of the children of Israel, you know, going after the pagan gods, finding suffering, finding bondage, crying out to God, and then being delivered. Okay, it follows that pattern. Not all the sto other stories to come follow that pattern exactly, but this one does. And it, it serves as a paradigm through which we can read the stories to come. So, the story of Othniel. It's a simple one, as I said. It wasn't very long. Just a few verses. And the cycle begins with Othniel as we're told it would in the prelude. God's chosen people, those, were who, those who were supposed to, to love and serve Him and Him only, gave themselves to the gods of the Canaanite people. The Bible says they forgot. Okay? That doesn't mean they had a simple case of amnesia. 
Okay, chapter 2 makes it clear that this was a willful forsaking of the God that had delivered them from Egypt. Okay, this was a forsaking of the God that had brought them across the Red Sea. It's the, it was a forsaking of the God and a forgetting the God who had miraculously kept them alive in the wilderness. They willfully forsook the God that had delivered many of the Canaanite enemies into their hand, and they served these other gods. As they, they entered the land of Canaan, they decided they wanted to have a form of Yahwehism. Okay, they wanted to have a form of the one true God, okay, when it served their purposes and when it was on their terms. But to hedge their bets, they served these pagan gods of the Canaanites too. Okay, they forsook God and were in direct disobedience to what he had told them to do. So, this behavior, this rebellion, this unfaithfulness made God red hot with anger. Okay, now, this makes us uncomfortable, okay? but it was merited because the love God had for these people. Like a spouse who would be angered by the unfaithfulness of their counterpart, God is angry because He loved these people that they were unfaithful to Him. It was merited. And so... God, in His anger, did what He so often does. He effectively said, fine, if that's what you want, have it your way. And God turned the people of Israel over to the pagan gods and the pagan people that they had subjected themselves to. So, the nation of Israel became enslaved by the king of Mesopotamia. Okay, now, now, this man was no inconsequential king of some local city-state. Okay? I think Brother Paul has a map that he's going to put up on the screens for us. As you can see in the bottom left-hand corner, you have Jerusalem, there by the Dead Sea, and all the way up you know, towards the center at the top, just below Assyria, it says Mesopotamia. Okay, this man, Cush, whatever the rest of it was, I'm not going to try to say it again, he had built an empire that reached all the way down to Jerusalem and Canaan. Okay, throughout the rest of the book of Judges, there are many kings who are rulers of local city-states who sometimes band together to oppress the Israelites. Okay, that's not what this guy was. He was a world-class emperor who had built this empire that stretched all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and had been able to oppress the Israelites, and you would assume the rest of Canaan, for at least eight years, because that's how long the Israelites were captive. Thank you, Brother Paul. So, the king of Mesopotamia was not an insignificant man, and Othniel's victory that we just read about was not an insignificant victory. Okay, this was a big deal. Um, but I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But the king of Mesopotamia was not an insignificant king. So, because of Israel's rebellion... And infidelity, God allowed them to suffer as slaves to the king of Mesopotamia. And they were miserable. Okay, how do I know this? Well, because it says that they cried out to God. This was not a cry of repentance. Okay, actually, in the book of Judges, is fascinating, but the nation of Israel never really cries out in repentance. They cry out out of pain and suffering. And that's what this word means. They cry out to God because they're suffering under the oppression of the king of Mesopotamia. Okay. In 
my kitchen at home, most of the bottom corners of our cabinet doors fall about here, okay? Except for four that I'm very familiar with. There are two above the kitchen sink and two above the stove. And I can't tell you how many times I have maybe been at the sink and I turn around to go to the stove or vice versa and my forehead comes into contact with the corner of one of those cabinet doors. Okay, that hurts desperately. And I would like to say it's always my wife's fault, but I am as guilty of leaving those cabinet doors open as she is. But in those moments, okay, a sound comes out of my mouth and I'm not going to make the sound now, but it's a cry of pain, okay? There's no repentance in that sound I make. It just hurts, okay? That's what this cry was. They were crying to God for help, but it was simply a cry of pain. So God hears their pain, and he can see it. They're suffering as slaves, just like they had back in Egypt. And here's what's so amazing about God. He hears this, and based on no merit on the part of the Israelites, based on no repentance, he sends a deliverer. Okay. God simply hears their cries of pain, their suffering, and it moves him. His heart is moved with compassion, and he works to deliver them. So God raised up a deliverer. He raised up a man named Othniel. Now from this brief story in chapter 3, we know virtually nothing about this man. Okay? If we want to find anything out about him, we'd have to go back to chapter 1, where it talks about him a little bit. And from what we can tell there, he seems like a pretty good man. In this particular passage, in chapter 3, nothing negative is said about Othniel. Now, when you consider we're talking about the judges, that's not insignificant. Okay? And we can assume it's probably on purpose. When we look back at chapter 1, it tells of Othniel and how he went and conquered the land that he was supposed to conquer. And after doing so, he married an Israelite woman, which the Israelites were not doing. They were marrying the Canaanites. So as best we can tell, he was an obedient, God-fearing man. Okay? Unlike most of the judges. Okay? So this is Othniel, and God raises him up. It says in verse 10, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he went to war. Now again, think about who the king of Mesopotamia was. You have one man who organized a group of people, the Israelites, who had no formal government to throw off a world-class emperor for 40 years. This was not a temporary fix. The Bible says the land had peace for 40 years. Not a lot of details in this story. There's not a lot of details about Othniel. But that's incredible. That's an incredible story. It's not a dynamic story because of the lack of details. But the fact that one man, Othniel, threw off the king of Mesopotamia for 40 years is an incredible story. Okay. So it's an incredible story, and it's simple, but what's the point? As I said, there's very little said about the assumed hero of the story, Othniel. There's very little said about the, the oppressor, 
the king of Mesopotamia. There's very little said about the battle and the subsequent victory. And that's because the subject of the story is not primarily Othniel. It's not the king of Mesopotamia, nor the ensuing battle. In this particular story that leads into the rest of the book of Judges, the subject of the story is primarily God. Through this story, we can learn something about the nature of God and how He works in our world. So first of all, it's simple and obvious, but God is merciful. And that much is very clear from this story. I'm so thankful for it, as I think we all would be. We bring an unbelievable amount of suffering on ourselves and often aren't very repentant, just like the people of Israel, and yet God is still just good to us in ways we don't even understand. Um, We see this throughout Scripture. God sees our pain, He's moved with compassion, and in turn, He's good. Okay, and that's, that's a pattern we see throughout Scripture. So God is merciful, and the way God has chosen to work in our world to bring about His good has always been, okay, this is a pattern in Scripture, it's always been by His Spirit working through people. Okay, look at verse 9. It says, and when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, who does it say raised up a deliverer? Okay, it says the Lord did. Okay, look at what it says next. It says, who delivered the children of Israel? Well, it says even Othniel, the son of Kenaz. Okay, look at verse 10. It says, the spirit of who? The Lord came upon Othniel, the spirit of the Lord, and who delivered in the middle of verse 10? It says the Lord. Okay. So I would ask the question, who delivered Israel? Think about it. It's kind of a trick question. Who delivered Israel? Well, I think the answer would be both God, obviously, that much is clear, and Othniel. The text is pretty clear that it was by the power of God's Spirit that the victory was accomplished. God's Spirit was the power. But this power was channeled through God's vessel, okay, and that was Othniel. God brought about deliverance for the nation of Israel by His Spirit through a man, Othniel. And I want to propose to you that God works in a very similar fashion today. Okay. We're surrounded by people every day who don't know God and are seeking everything they should be finding in Him in everything other than Him. Okay. We do this. Lost people do this. We're surrounded by people like this every day. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that men know the truth. That is, they know the difference between right and wrong because God has written His law in their hearts. Romans 2.14 says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, 
These, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. Okay, so every human being has a basic understanding of right and wrong because we are God's creation. He designed us. and We understand the difference between right and wrong because we're His creation. And it is, it is the rebellion against God, it is this rebellion against His law written in our hearts, it's this rebellion against His design that fills God with wrath. Okay? And what He has done to people down through history, okay, Romans chapter 1 is a pattern of this, is God says, fine, you know the truth, but if you want to suppress that in your unrighteousness, fine, have it your way. And what does He do? He turns us over to our rebellious minds to do those things. He says, you, you want to serve those gods, fine, go serve them and suffer the consequences. Okay, that's what God does in His anger. And that's what's spelled out in Romans chapter 1. And this, this leads to incredible pain. We see it around us all the time. I don't have to explain that to you. People are hurting. People are suffering. We're hurting and suffering. It's a consequence of sin in the world. Okay? So, this brings an incredible amount of pain. And the only reason the world continues to be a halfway bearable place to live at all is because God continues to intervene for good. Okay? And He has all through history. You see, people get hung up on God's wrath in Romans chapter 1 and forget that the entire rest of the book of Romans is about God's deliverance. Okay? He, he provides a way of salvation. And, and He brings about salvation. God hears the cries of people. He sees our suffering, and it moves Him. He's merciful as part of His nature. It moves Him as a compassionate God, and in His incredible mercy and grace, He works in the world for our good, despite our rebellion. So, ultimately and obviously, this is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. That's the good news, right? We call it the gospel. Um, God wants people to come to know Him, and He's provided a way for them to do so. Okay? So Christ is obviously the ultimate example of God's working for good in the world, but how does someone come to a saving knowledge of Christ? Okay. The Spirit convinces someone of their sin, right? Convinces someone of their need for a Savior. Convinces someone that Christ is that Savior. That's the work of the Spirit, and that's the power by which someone is saved. But how does someone hear the Gospel? Through a person, right? That's how God's chosen to accomplish His good in our world. I don't understand why he does that, but he does. Okay, so a person delivers the good news, and the Spirit works through that person to bring someone to faith in Christ, right? This is how God works to accomplish good in the world. God delivers people by His Spirit working through people. Okay. God has chosen in His grand design to accomplish good in the world by His Spirit working through people. Why does He do that? I have no idea, but He does. That's His pattern. That's His plan. So fundamentally, the gospel can't work if we're not, at the very least, 
telling people. Okay. God using us to spread the gospel is his plan. And that's pretty fundamental. But God, I believe, wants to use us for good in so many other ways. God doesn't just want you to be his vessel for good in the world in telling people the gospel. He wants, to, he wants you to be his vessel for good in the world in a million ways each and every day. God wants to work through us in that way. We're supposed to be Christ-like. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Okay, so he said, be a light and let the world see your what? Your good works. Okay, what are good works? Well, I'm not going to claim to exhaust them tonight. Well, let's just keep it simple. We're talking about a lot of them on Sunday mornings in our adult Bible classes, aren't we? The fruit of the Spirit. Right? The Spirit of God working in your life to be a good in the world. Okay? The Spirit produces this, but we're the vessel. Okay? It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. So I'm not trying to give an exhaustive list of what it means to be a Spirit-filled individual here. These are the basics. Okay? Does your life demonstrate obedience to the will of the Spirit? Because it's the will of the Spirit that we would demonstrate these things. Do you show love? Do you have joy and peace that others can see? Do you suffer long with other people? Are you gentle, kind, and good? Do you demonstrate the ability to control your passions? Okay, I would ask you this question, and just pause and think about it for a minute. Does your life look more like that of a deliverer, or does it look like someone in need of deliverance? We live in an increasingly dark world full of people who are suffering in real ways each and every day. They don't know what it means to experience true love. There's no joy or peace in their hearts. They're selfish and full of fleshly passions. They're suffering, and God, in His mercy, has devised this master plan for deliverance and hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's good news. That's why we call it the gospel. That's good. But how has He chosen to deliver that message? Through you and me. He's commissioned us to share the gospel. And as I said, why he's chosen to do that, I don't fully understand, but he has. So are you a vessel he can use? First of all, do you even tell people? But second, does your life demonstrate his goodness? If you can't demonstrate the work of the Spirit in your life, if you can't show love, if there's no joy and peace ever that anyone else can see, if you snap at people at work, if your passion gets the best of you, why in the world, why in the world would your coworker need what you have? 
Okay? So, no. It will become obvious in the judges. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. Okay? But no one in the book of Judges accomplished what Othniel did. Okay? It was next level in the victory he experienced. And I, it's because he was a man, a good man, who didn't have the vices of Samson, and he could be used of God okay, in an incredible way. God's design is that the church, this place, be a place where believers can find support and encouragement. Okay? But if there's no joy in your life as a result of the Spirit working in your life, how are you going to be an encouragement to someone here? If you can't love through service, God has this plan that the church be an encouragement and a support in the life of a believer. Okay? But that plan has to work through us because we make it up. Okay? God's Spirit wants to work in the lives of believers through the people that are part of the church. Okay? That's us. God wants to use you for good in your home. He wants you to demonstrate His love to your spouse. He wants you to demonstrate the joy of the Lord to your children. Okay? God wants to work through people. Do you let Him? Again, I'm not saying be perfect. God uses imperfect people. But Othniel accomplished a lot because he was a good man. God delivers by His Spirit working through people. So I would ask again, just take this question with you and ponder it. Does your life look more like that of a potential deliverer, or does it look like one in need of deliverance? The way the Spirit works in our lives is a little mysterious. When the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, I would not even begin to tell you all that means. Um, it's a big idea. But here's what I do know. If any of us have been in church for any period of time, I think we know a lot of the fundamentals of what the Spirit would want us to do. Okay. The issue is more a matter of submission and obedience. God wants to work through us in the lives of people. And it'd be a shame if we got in the way of that. Um, let's, let's be vessels that He can use. All right, let's pray.